All right, so we're back here. Um, I guess this is day two, technically, uh, with Ronnie being uh, the, the first one that we did here. Excited to bring uh, one of my best friends out in LA here on the pod. He's a master of product. He's a growth expert. Um, and he is actually a pretty decent golfer. Or, I mean, I would say you've improved. You've, you've improved. You've improved a lot. Um, so that's why I can say you're, you're pretty decent. Um, about expectations. If you start them low, you know, anything above is, uh, is good. That's right. And we, and we certainly started them on the ground is, is what I'll <laughs> say. So, um, I love that. One of, one of the most interesting things I would say off the bat is Brian is someone who exemplifies the idea of just doing the work. Um, so very excited to kind of walk through your story. Um, talk about your background, talk about what you're building today, talk about where you're going. I think that's kind of the theme of, of what we're trying to do here. Talk with builders, talk with investors and, and understand what, what keeps you motivated. I think the first question I want to ask you at the gate, um, because quite frankly, I think background sections of podcasts are really lame and boring. So mixing it up a little bit because anyone can Google you and see your LinkedIn. I have to know about this internship in the Grand Caymans. What is what was this about? Uh, it looks like you were working on quote tracking illegal visitor activity on Little Water K. What was what was that about? <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, actually a really cool story. I think it was between my sophomore and junior year of college. I interned in the Turks and Caicos Island with the uh, government's national trust. Um, don't see that on LinkedIn very often. So uh, I, I get asked that question a lot. And it's funny, it starts with, uh, I have a really good family friend um, who their family has a house down on a small island down there. It's probably the coolest vacation spot I've ever been to. It is this small island off the coast of, I guess, Provo is the main island. You have to boat for about 45 minutes to get this small island. I think there's 20 houses, there's no roads. There's no stores. It is literally golf carts and sand pass. And it's the coolest, most remote place I've ever been. And they have a house down there. And I guess um, our friend's father got in touch with someone and was like, do you want to do this internship with the National Trust? And we said, live in the Turks and Caicos for uh, three months uh, in college. Yeah, I think we'll do that. Yeah. Um, so we went down there. I also love telling this story is, when you get to the airport, we have to go to this other island. I'll never forget this. We were, I guess it was a connecting flight, uh, I like to say, and we didn't take a boat this time. And I go through security, which is literally zero security, and they hand me my boarding pass. No exaggeration, it was an 8 by 10 piece of paper with Times New Roman font that said boarding pass. Not even laminated. Literally just said boarding pass. No name nothing and i rode shotgun in the plane <laughs> that's that's some fire festival I, wrote, yeah. I was like what is happening uh but it's just so beautiful the clear waters the white beaches where i was uh i was mesmerized by uh by the views and not worried about uh the maybe second time pilot ever uh flying uh giving us a ride from island to island uh but just yeah you think about like Sam Bankman Freed punching the air right now, thinking you yeah. picked the wrong island down there. Yeah, exactly. Probably not even extradition on the island you were yeah. on. They said boarding pass. He had to get sent back. Yeah, exactly. You got to get those uh, Times New Roman boarding passes. That's yeah. Get you anywhere. 
but yeah, it was great. So we worked with the National Trust on there. Essentially, their mission is to help preserve the island, the water, uh, coral reefs, all of that stuff. Um, and it was really cool because, I mean, we were 20, 21 years old, and we've been so used to being in college where, you know, you're learning, you're not prepared enough, you, you know, you're an intern. And these people here kind of looked at us the complete opposite way. They were like, wow, here's, you know, I was with a guy that went to Vanderbilt and then a guy that was in law school at um, a school up in Canada, very prestigious school. And it went from, hey, internship, you get coffee to my one in L.A. to this where they were looking for us for all the guidance, which I think was really cool because it helped us establish this sort of confidence of, hey, like what you've done, what you've learned, what you think actually matters. And I think that was a really powerful internship where, you know, they were kind of looking for us to build strategy, figure out what was happening. Um, and we identified a problem that tourists were really either taking advantage of them from a uh, money standpoint where, you know, people weren't paying the right amount of money to do boat tours and all these things. And then also they were kind of damaging some of the uh, islands that, you know, where no one lived and you weren't supposed to go to. I think they had something called like Sea Turtle Island, which is a little small island, maybe like 50 acres where there's a ton of sea turtles and lizards and incredible wildlife. And these tourist companies were just abusing it and going to it. And, you know, all these tourists are throwing trash and doing all these things. So we got to go just hang out on, on the island for a couple of weeks and, you know, make sure and, and set up, I guess, infrastructure to allow this not to happen. Um, so that was an internship sandwich in between uh, two corporate ones in LA, and uh, it, it was great. I, I love that uh, those three months I spent there. Uh, I love it because it, it kind of takes me to the idea of like some people work so hard to kind of achieve what what they see as like retirement, and I, I love that that's like almost your first experience uh, <laughs> because that is like some people's idea of retirement, like going to a a, you know, a beach or, or whatever and, and doing yeah. something for the, uh, you know, ecology or, or whatever. So I love that that was kind of your starting point. Maybe that helped to, to frame, okay, this, this is an opportunity that I can always come back to. Um, but I'm curious as we kind of move from something that maybe is a little more like wholesome into like, you know, LA and, and kind of bigger business I've seen, you know, and we talked about how you've worked at, at unicorns and, and really those hyper growth businesses uh, are completely different from what you just described. Like it's very much um, performance based and, and needing to, to execute every single day um, instead of something that's that's a little bit more um, kind of EQ driven. It's like, okay, you have a job to do and, and you need to do it. But I'm curious because going back to your background, I, I see you as someone that always operates with, with a chip on your shoulder. And so really just trying to understand your motivation, where, where do you think that chip comes from? Like, or when did, when did that chip form? Was, was it in college at, at UVA? Was it, was it sooner? How do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of two things. One is kind of, I have this, uh, I guess, delusion where I think I can kind of accomplish, uh, anything, which is, can be a chip or just, you know, delusion. Uh, another one is this, uh, you know, I was trying to get into comp school, which I think you were, you were a, a comm major and at UVA, it's this really big thing. You apply after your junior year and you have to have a three, eight GPA and it's very prestigious. And 
I guess students come in and make that their entire identity just to get in. And I was one of those students. And I think I'm the only person in the history of uh, the comm school to apply twice. So I did it after my junior year and I wanted to get in so badly. I essentially repeated a couple classes. Like I think I got B's in, you know, a couple classes and I repeated them to get an A to get in. Um, and I didn't get in again. And, you know, I remember thinking it was the end of the world that I didn't get into this major of a college that is just so far removed from all of three of our lives now. But in that moment, it felt like the most important thing in the world. Um, and I think that that really helped because thank God I didn't get in there. That is just not who I am. I think I was just trying to, you know, kind of mirror what everyone else was doing is, hey, this person looks, acts, feels, talks successful um, in their income school. So I want to do that. And I think that that really helped me at first try to, I was upset, you know, I wanted to get in, but it made me realize that I had to find success another way. Little did I know success lives in a million different avenues and it's not just through comm school at the university of virginia you know that's not the only form of success in life and i i think it's a combination of that it's that chip slash realizing that there's so many different ways to do things and sometimes the unique way is actually far more successful far uh, better to just help you understand what you want to do and where you want to go and how you do things and i think that was a really good thing that helped yeah, I, I think that's a great lesson. Brian. Go ahead. Something go ahead, you Ryan. mentioned, Brian, that was super interesting to me is you use the word delusion. And, that, and that's something that I use a lot too. And I think that's a common thread amongst all entrepreneurs. Like you have to be bold enough, a little bit crazy enough to think that, hey, I can, I see a problem. I think I can fix it and I can, I can change, you know, the outcome of this, right? Like that's not normal. Most people just don't think like yeah. that. I, I've realized, you know, backing up even before your UVA days, how, how was it growing up? Were you always the type of person that was trying new pursuits, trying to sell lemonade in the neighborhood or flipping baseball cards and, and just kind of like, what was your journey to even get there? And why did you, why did you want to pursue business? Yeah. And I think this is probably the place where I learned more about business than any job I have ever had. Obviously later jobs, you learn about product and, you know, go to market and all that stuff. But um, I was a baseball card guy. So essentially I worked at a card shop when I was 12 years old and you're sitting there negotiating. I'm trying to flip cards to open more cards. I'm trying to buy this card, sell it on eBay. And I figured out essentially just very, very simple core business principles, which I think often get overlooked. One, just negotiation, right? I have these cards that I'm trying to sell to get that card or that product and understanding how to do that. I think I just had so much success with and so much um, experience doing that before I was even in high school. Um, and then another one is I loved the idea of flipping. I was never I was never a patient investor with cards, and I have a couple big uh, big missouts that I'll, I'll say in a second that you guys will love. But what I did was I would find guys that were essentially you know hot prospects or players during the off season that were kind of had the opportunity to get eyeballs on them because buying cards is not really about your production i mean it obviously is but it's do people want to buy you are you fun there's a reason you know guys like odell beckham and not johnny menzel and those guys were so hyped and their cards sold like crazy is because people wanted to buy them like buy their jerseys yeah. very very correlated 
Um, so what I the hottest, do, the hottest card. I don't know if you've seen it. Just to jump in, the hottest card right now is, is Puka Nakua, the, the like yeah, Rams wide receiver, just because he's no Got everyone's 20, like excited. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and he's on my fantasy team, so please go buy his card. But I think <laughs> that um, I think it's really interesting because I was doing this and I I found success and it allowed me to not have to go get like that job at a restaurant. I never was a waiter or like that ice cream shop when you're 15, 16, cause I could flip cards. Um, and it allowed me to create wealth without spending a ton of time doing a nine to five. And I think that was kind of the first entrepreneur ish thing that I did where I realized, Hey, you can find ways to create value based on your findings, your hustle, your thoughts and your research. And, you know, that was pretty cool. That really uh, unlocked a lot of, I guess, vision and, you know, kind of entrepreneurship skills in my mind. And it's funny because we didn't even discuss this before and I didn't know that was your background. That's uh, very much in Ryan and I's background too. And something that we discussed on our last podcast. The other factor that I always tell people, it's same with like the sneaker world, is it's a level playing field. No one cares about like your background or what you've done. If you have a something that's a commodity, and you have it priced, you can sell it. Like you'll see people at baseball card conventions, 12 year olds that were smart enough to get this prospect's cards very early, flipping it to very seasoned, you know, older, older collectors. And it, it's really one of the wildest uh, arenas that I've ever seen. And something that always jumps out to me about the baseball card world is something you touched on is, is the affinity for finding the next up and coming prospect. There was, there was a story this morning I read about, you know, Justin Spielberg's cards sometimes go trade for 20X what Dan Marino's PSA 10 cards trade for, even though there's only like 20 PSA 10 Dan Marino cards. And I feel like it's like venture. Everyone wants to be with the next hottest thing. And that's exciting for them. And they want to be able to say, I got in on it early. Like, it's not, it's not that fun to say like, oh, my favorite player is Barry Bonds. I have a a bunch of Barry Bonds cards. It's, yeah. oh, I, I got Acuna when he was still in double A. I bought up all yeah. of his cards. So I'm not sure where I'm going with it, but it, I thought that was like an interesting thing of how the market values things in the baseball card world. But understand that's helpful. The fact that, you know, a guy like Drew Brees doesn't sell as well as Kenny Pickett is mind boggling. So finding ways to take advantage of that. And I'll give you guys one nugget. The There's this kid I liked. He was like a later round pick. I think he was probably like, early teens, late teens, early twenties. Um, and I remember being like, Hey, this kid, I don't know if he's any good, but his situation could make him be a superstar there. He's relatively unknown. So I ended up buying a decent amount of cards. I'll never forget this. I bought, I bought his best card for, I think it was $400 and I traded it at a show. I went to the show looking just for this guy's card. I traded it for, this card for $200 in silver Eagles, which is just like silver and a Kyle Schwarber rookie card. So like, let's go literally like, I don't, it was smorgasbord stuff. And it was, I bought it for 400 bucks essentially. Better not be Mike Trout. Go ahead. And it was uh, Giannis, his oh. NTRPA number to like 99. I think started playing better. I flipped it for probably like 2,500 bucks. And at a 20 year old, like 2,500 bucks is, you know, an IPL for me, like I'm rich. Um, yeah. I think at the height that card sold for about 750,000. And I think I had two of them at one point. Um, so, you know, I, I made a five X 400 into about 2,500, but it doesn't feel like a good five X. Uh, I'm, la I'm laughing because I think there's going to be like some article that comes out in a couple of years in scientific journals. I'll probably be the 
case study on the mental illness from baseball cards to NFTs to crypto <laughs> to then just the pipelines and the venture capital. Because why are we all on the same path? Why are we all on the same path of we're chasing something at 100x and we can't sleep at night? Because you just yeah. described every investment I've made for the last 10 years. And that's why when someone's like, why wouldn't you just put your money in the S&P? It's like, ah, oh, man, I, come on, 7% a year? <laughs> I, I like yeah. to do that in an hour. Yeah, and you're talking to a guy that minted five board apes the day they came out for 120 bucks a piece and and sold way too early. But you know, I guess everyone has winners and losers. But but isn't yeah. that kind of like the, the definition of what makes a great entrepreneur? It's like you you have to be in the space. Like something that I always go go to is this idea: if I have a two percent chance of success, that means I just need to do something 50 times. Like eventually something will hit. It's not even being lucky. It's I've been here. Like a, a lot of late nights led to me being an overnight success. And I think yeah. that's the common trait is like you're always trying to learn and you're curious and you're willing to take chances. And maybe that's also why you're willing to like do what you're doing right now with your newest startup. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, I, I would 100% agree. I mean, I think it's a couple different things on top of that as well. It's your ability to be doing different things. Obviously, you don't want to be spinning off the face of the earth, but like if everyone's doing it, it's probably not unique enough for you to be an entrepreneur or survive on your own. If it is chaotic enough to not succeed, then that's a problem. So finding kind of that middle ground and it's, you know, I think those are the people that can really, really succeed and find ways in business because you are being innovative enough while also being strategic and, you know, making sure that you're doing the right things to make your creative idea succeed. Yeah, and I'd I like remember, to, take a to, to thank sorry. our future sponsor Panini as well, Ryan. If you could make that happen, that'd be I, yeah. I got I got a couple of buddies over there. We'll, we'll okay, make that we'll, <laughs> okay, we'll get we'll get to work on that one. I, it's funny that we talk about this because I remember very vividly in in fall of 2021, me, um, you, Ryan, and our other friend Jordan, who's Ryan's co-founder. Um, you know, really using the phrase like we got to just hang around the hoop. Like good things are going to happen if if we just we hang around the hoop, the right founders, the right investors, the right interesting people. Um, and, and I believe in that, right? It's just like getting the reps in, being in those conversations. And it, it takes me back actually, literally to the fall of 2021. We're at this massive beach house for like this, uh, I don't know, VC fund launching. We walk in the door, we don't know what we're doing. Like people are like, are you a founder? Or are you an investor? And we're all just like, uh, I'm, I'm with I'm doing what they're doing right <laughs> like, like it's funny to think how how green we are um but I, I want you to talk about the calculus at the time because you were at route still which is you know one of those companies that's that was in high that is in hyper growth um a unicorn and for those for those people out there that are working a, a job and side hustling and trying to figure out what they want to do whether it's an agency, whether it's staying at the hypergrowth unicorn, whatever they're looking at doing next, what was the calculus in in trying to figure out how you could build what you are building now and ask Alex, was it, I need to get this far enough to where I can jump and ask Alex is like a big enough dinghy for me to actually ride on. Can you, can you kind of speak to that calculus? Like what went into kind of that thought process? Yeah, I mean, I think it's this combination of experience and then also knowing what you like. But I think it's actually more important to know what you don't like. So I, you know, route, I was there, I was a PM on the growth team. And it's 
everything that looks great on paper. I was making a great salary. I was working on cool things. I think my stock was around the company was about 30 to 50 million. When I started, when I left, we just closed a series B or a, or forgot that, uh, which one at one and a quarter billion. So like on paper, it looks like I'm crushing it, but in reality, I absolutely hated what I was doing. And it's not had nothing to do with route had nothing to do with like my day-to-day activities. It just, I realized that I like the ownership. I like that what I'm doing here is going to make a tangible impact on today, tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year. And I think bird really, really helped me with that. Um, so I joined bird when we were, you know, I think this office on Abbott Kinney, it was really small. Um, I think there was less than like the scooter, 50 employees. I don't know that the scooter company, right. And at that time they were a, the coolest thing in the world. I think that they were the fastest company and this has probably been broken now, the fastest company ever to raise at a billion and a $2 billion valuation. So I think we raised $800 million and I think we spacked. And if you look at our market cap now, it is less than like 50 million or something. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's, and it's crazy to think about, but that was probably the best learning experience of my entire life because I was thrown into an environment where that had a ton of capital. I was there early enough where I was able to do things. And I was on a team that was trying to move so quickly that nothing was a bad idea. You had the resources to test things and you had the resources to understand if those tests work. And then you could kind of build whatever you want, which was incredible. I just remember coming up with ideas. I mean, this is such a little small example, but I remember we were doing a lot of stuff around college campuses, right? We were trying to get students to ride birds, take them to class. It just is a really good, I guess, environment for more rides. And UCLA was playing USC. And I said, how can we find a way to talk, you know, smack talk the other team by not pissing off the current rider? So I remember scraped all their emails, figured out for .ucla.edu, let's make fun of USC. And for usc.edu, let's make fun of UCLA. And that was something that, you know, at another company probably would have taken a month to get enough approvals, to even build that, to segment the customers, to even send notifications. And I remember I did it in an afternoon because it was my idea. And that's great for being able to test things and learn. And that helped me so much just have chaotic tests. Some worked, some didn't. And those findings are just really impactful because they help you with your creativity and they work. Now, Bird, hindsight 2020, obviously they're not doing very well, but you know that was such a great environment. And I was there where we were just hiring everyone from Stanford, Wharton, all these smart, creative people. Um, Union economics of the scooter business go figure, did not work. But for that kind of year and a half when I was there, it it taught me more than any job I've ever had just because I was thrown into the fire. I was allowed to test my dumb ideas, which eventually turned into good ideas. Yeah, I like that. I have a question. You said a lot of intelligent things and I'm so simple-minded. Answer me this. Is it true that it's cheaper to just get a new scooter than it is for it to be repaired? So it's very interesting because... That was, I always got that question. They were like, hey, do you follow this Instagram account, Burr Graveyard, where it's, they threw, that's what I think. I know we we definitely got them, you know, we earned them in bulk. So it was 
pretty cheap, but I think it was a combination of bringing them in, repairing them, and just like the logistics of bringing in, finding, bringing back out is also added to that cost. So, but then again, we had $800 million of funding and we are more worried about, you know, product and all these cool things. And um, I think that that business is just, it doesn't need to have a revolutionary tech tech product. It needs to have functionality on the charging side. Like I remember we did a hackathon and this within an afternoon, we built this tool where um, on your Apple maps or your Google maps, you could like swipe it up and say you're driving to, you're driving home and swipe it up. And we added a light to the front of the scooter where it would project the direction. So it'd say turn here in 20 feet, which is like, in an afternoon, that's pretty freaking dope, right? Yeah. But also, like, it's a freaking scooter. Like, do we really <laughs> need that? So it, it was run like a Google tech company trying all these innovative ideas. But at the end of the day, like, it's a scooter. It's just a scooter. Like, yeah. It's just a scooter. Um, so, but it was, a, it was probably the coolest experience of my life just because it was so many things coming together that allowed us to have endless resources. Um the ability to try things. And like I said, I was thrown into the fire where, you know, I might've been an entry associate, whatever at another tech company, but I was kind of one of the leaders on the product team sending things out. I think there was one of one person above me kind of on that, on that growth side. Um, so I was uh, very, very fortunate to, to be included there. I'm, la I'm laughing because my experience with the scooters is one time, I think I was in Nashville and I saw two people get into a fight and, the scooter was weaponized in a way that you wouldn't expect it to be weaponized. So obviously there's ramifications if you punch somebody and you get yeah. into it. Well, these obviously fans were from opposing sides and probably were pretty inebriated. And at one point, the other person grabbed somebody's scooter, launched it off the bridge into the water. And I recognized the damage that he had just done to that individual was pretty substantial because I'm assuming it was tied to his credit card. And there was going to be a lost scooter from that. So yeah, he probably, never forget he probably that. Like, a little bit. Yeah, it's like, why would I punch this man? I'll throw his scooter over the bridge and let him deal with those I consequences. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think smarter, not work harder. Exactly. That's that's chess right there. Um, kind of transitioning from a place which I agree, I remember reading the headlines at the time, just kind of coming from the finance perspective, Bird could do like no wrong. Like you guys were raising like every like six months or something. It was like ridiculous. And so moving from kind of an environment and a company that, like you said, was like right place, right time, just like had the appetite from all the venture, all stages of venture investors um, into like a, into the present day, a very like constrained situation, not only with fundraising, but just being a, an early stage startup founder yourself. What is that? What's the, what's the environment like today? What is it, what does it feel like, um, you know, for someone who's not a founder, like to describe not only are you having to build product like you would at bird or any other project, but now you have the responsibility of having to go raise money. Can you kind of like describe what that feeling is like, or is it pressure? Is it good pressure? Is it bad pressure? What, what does it feel like to kind of have that aspect? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think that obviously, you know, every company is different and the environment right now hopefully is uh, starting to turn. I mean, I definitely think it is. If you see Clavio, Went public today, Instacart yesterday, both of them popped. So I think those are tremendous signs. Um, and then also when you're raising, your early stage is, is a story more than anything. It's my idea could be this, 
And if we do that correctly, it could be that. And I think understanding that is really important. And I think a lot of people try to convince either investors or venture funds that their idea is amazing. And once they don't like their idea, they try to convince them harder when it's the opposite, right? You only need one person to kind of believe in your idea or believe in you if you need money. And I think it's double down on those people that, hey, this is kind of interesting or what this could be is could be something. I think that's where you need to kind of, you know, try to fit in. I think what we're doing and you guys are founders as well is is very different and unique compared to other people. So why are you trying to make everyone happy? Like what you're doing is already unique in itself. So you're clearly not going to convince nine out of the 10 venture funds or nine out of the 10 employees to, you know, come work with you or to invest in you, but find that one out of the 10 and spend all your time and effort there. I think that's really important um, in a space where what you're doing is inherently risky, inherently different, inherently unique. Make sure that you're targeting the people that kind of align with you because you're going to kill yourself trying to convince venture investors or investors that don't really believe in you to like you. They're just not. And that's okay. That's totally fine. Um, so I think that's been one thing as far as the environment. Find the people that like what you're doing or see some sort of value in what you're doing and then put the resources there. If they don't want to invest now, keep them updated. Keep talking. I think talking to people is the key for all of this. Yeah, and I, think I, an I like that element, idea. Go ahead, go ahead, Ryan. I think an underrated element to me, like the most important slide on an early stage company in the deck is the founder profiles. Like I've had a chance to interact with you and Jordan, and I, I suspect that your investor bet on you guys more than even the idea itself. Because as we all know, things are going to pivot. You're going to have to resequence it. Our deck looks nothing like it looked like three months ago, six months ago, a year ago. So that that's something that's always big to me is exactly what you said. Get to know the investor that just trusts you, especially early on. And it's going to allow you to make mistakes. It's going to allow you to use your mind and say, you know what? We had this a little wrong. That doesn't mean your investment's going to be thrown away. We're going to just allocate our time and energy towards doing this next. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's believing in a person because, I mean, ideas change. We're kind of one of our comps, as we see, is kind of MailChimp and Clavio. And MailChimp started a, as a design agency. They were literally designing, you know, websites, designing um, products. They were fully front end image based and now they're sending emails. It's and they're they were acquired for twelve billion dollars. So I think it's invest invest in the team, invest in a problem. And if your solution looks a little different, then that's probably a good thing. Yeah. And and I think one thing you talked about that is so true or what's true in the EQ journey is like the story is always changing. And I think that's that's like it is seen as a negative, like the P word pivot is seen as like, ah, oh, you're pivoting. And, and really, that's what you should be doing. You should always be, you know, sniffing out the, the best trail to go down. Um, and I'm curious, um, because I'm, I'm a full, I'm a believer in by experience, and you guys have the experience too, that honing the pitch and talking to 100 investors isn't so much that your your pitch is getting that much better from zero to 100. It does get better because you get the reps. But it's also about just finding the right fit, like you're saying, of like, oh, exactly. investor number 65, actually, we fit within like their thesis or like their belief system or or whatever. And it's about just having enough conversations to be able to work your way through that. And I think that's a common misconception um, that people don't understand until you do it. They just like think it's like Shark Tank every time and somehow you magically are better by like the 65th time. 
but no, it's because exactly. you understand like story points that start to work better than than others. And so, taking it back to the beginning, but then kind of zooming to the present, what ask what ask Alex used to be in you know my perspective as a third party, um, and I'll probably botch it, but you guys were very focused on the consumer um, experience, and you guys were more of a B two C app. And, and trying to connect restaurants with with their community directly, and um, that was a very fun era of of Ask Alex. Um, right. We had a lot of fun going to restaurants and and doing you know just like happy hours and Taco Tuesdays yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm curious, like, what is the story? How has it evolved to today? What is what is Ask Alex today? Exactly, and yeah, I'll kind of give the full story. And I also think to kind of double down on what you were saying earlier is being right doesn't always isn't always good timing is so important um and so i think it was 2020 i got access to OpenAI's api and it was building chatbots for fun which is hilarious and essentially connected it to uh yelp and then a company called twilio that delivers messages and essentially our vision was i want to have a phone number that when i text it i get a personalized concierge so it's i want taco it's gonna remember where I've eaten, what I've liked, what I didn't, what I ordered, and then give me recommendations based on that. So it's the perfect, I never have to think for myself. I walk in the restaurant, what did I order last time? I text this number, it tells me and does all that. So that was, you know, ChatGPT, for people that don't know, that's OpenAI company. And we were pitching that to investors and I'm not gonna name names, but I think we were a little too early. I remember pitching, well, well before the wave, like this is, well, this well is hard to like conceptualize, but this is well before like chat GPT took off like a year. Before. Everyone was doing NFTs at this time. Um, and us the included. thing was yeah, uh, me included, but I remember we pitched uh, a, I think it was like the second or third meeting with one of the three or four biggest VC funds in the world. And this is a, GP, who is, you know, obviously an incredible investor, but he told us verbatim that he doesn't, he is worried that, you know, we would be constrained to open AI, we're dependent on them. And we doesn't really see that company, you know, being big long term, which, you know, fast forward six months to a year, that guy's now writing thought pieces on how impactful AI is and open AI and what you can do. So it's, you know, were we wrong? No, we were just a little early and maybe I, you know, we got to pitch better. Um, but I think that it's important to always think of that is like, when you have an idea, when you're building something and people tell you that it's wrong, find the way to filter their opinions and obviously listen to everyone, learn things, but just because someone who apparently is extremely credentialed in a space tells you your idea is bad, doesn't mean it's bad. Now, 90% of the time it might, but, you know, also try to find out these filters where believe in yourself and, you know, pitch the person that's going to believe in you. And if you have a creative idea, double down. It's that delusion we talked about earlier, Aaron, like this is not comparing anyone to Elon, but Elon is kind of delusional. He tried to build car electric cars like that's something that has not happened ever. And he tried to build something. And if he would have had any doubt or listened to every single venture investor or investor you know, employee tried to hire that said, this is dumb, um, then probably wouldn't be where he was today. I actually, this is a really, really fun story. I had dinner with this guy who was an exec at a really big car company. 
and Elon asked him to come on to be their first um, CRO, Chief Revenue Officer. So he was going to be, I think, number three at the company very, 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 very early. And he just was like, I just don't think that this thing could ever exist. And that guy is a brilliant dude, but it's like, sometimes you just don't see, you know? And I think those entrepreneurs that are a little bit delusional in the sense that they can accomplish anything, either hit it really big, or, you know, if it doesn't work, that's fine. And they can maybe go start another one. I think conviction is really important. I think it's a blessing and a curse. Like you can't be afraid of failure. Like that's something that Ryan and I discussed a lot. For me, it was coming up in my agent realm of I got shut down so many times like now an investor would be like that's a stupid idea and I'd be like yeah it probably is I wouldn't be going home and cry about it I'd just call somebody else and I don't know you just have to be different right you have to have a different like tolerance and like you said that guy was probably very smart but it's very difficult to leave a very traditional conservative job where you know how you're going to get paid to take a chance Mm -hmm. on something that more likely than not is going to fail and right. are, are you willing to do that? The bigger takeaway I'm having here, and this is where we're going to cut it off because we have five viewers and I, I don't want others to hear this, is I'm convinced at this point, Brian is a time traveler because I've heard about he was early on Giannis. He was early on Board Apes. He was early on AI. So between us, what are we looking at next, Brian? Because I'm just going to hold it while you sell. So, so I have I got one other funny story to kind of uh, to kind of uh, talk about being earlier. Fast rewind 2019. Um, I, like I said, always been a collectibles card guy. I came across these thing called crypto punks and was like, huh, this is kind of interesting. What if we, you know, created a digital trading card? I called them digital art because I thought NFTs sounded lame. Digital art did not catch on. NFTs did. Um, I, uh, Jordan and I, we essentially raised, raised a million dollars. We had a million dollar commitment, um, if this deal went through. And we pitched Panini, who is the official license for the NBA, the NFL, NHL. I don't think they have baseball, but they make every card you've ever seen. We pitched them in the NFL on doing digital NFT trading cards, officially licensed. Get your Tom Brady, your Mahomes, all this. They said that it was the dumbest thing they'd ever heard, and they had no interest, and this will never exist. Fast, Fast forward two years. I mean, a year, Dapper obviously crushed it. Um, and then Panini, who no longer has the license because they weren't innovative enough, and their company is probably going to be worth a tenth of what it was worth back then because they didn't innovate. So that was another one. I mean, I, if they would have said yes, who knows how big we would have gotten. But you always kind of have to be doing these innovative things. And um, I do think there's a couple a couple things uh, on the horizon that I think are are next. I think messaging is huge. Um, you know, I think apps are kind of starting to realize that you can do a lot of stuff with text, a lot of stuff with messaging, um, a lot of things on mobile web interfaces. Where you know, I think there'll be a core app, and you see Elon trying to do this with X. He's trying to make it the one stop shop, like WhatsApp and LatAm and you know WeChat in China. And I think that there is something there. We will not be what we WeChat and WhatsApp are. I think America's payment style is a little different from uh, why everyone kind of got very obsessed with that overseas. But there is some sort of middle ground that I think we will eventually evolve to. Uh, I love that. At this point, we are no longer interested in Panini's sponsorship, but we will talk about <laughs> fanatics now that Brian just told us. Fanatics. 
The sage Brian has told us they will be worth one tenth of what they're worth. There we go. Yeah, that's yeah, that's my uh, my opinion. <laughs> no, I, funny I thing love is, it. good. Right? I know, I know, we got to wrap up here in a second, Brian. But I keep still thinking about that internship you mentioned because I think at the very end, that's where you're going to end up, right? That that's yep. going to end up being the best. I'm coming with you. Had. I'm going with it's you. Probably <laughs> collecting <laughs> baseball cards, riding on a scooter down in Turks and Caicos. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. And we will get bored after three months and then we'll all start companies again. <laughs> that's, 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 right. Absolutely that's, right. Right. that's absolutely right. The, the closing okay. question that I want to ask is one that, that we're going to ask most guests on here. Um, do you currently have any sayings, mantras, taglines that, that you're using today, either personally or at Ask Alex, um, just to kind of you know help you maintain focus? Um, I'll buy you a little bit of time and, and share one that like we use at EQ. We say like one team all the time. Like anytime there's, we win a deal or win a customer or whatever, it's one team. And it's the idea that kind of, you know, individuals are always, you know, in a part of the team, no matter who is contributing. I'm curious if you have anything that comes to mind, uh, personal or on the yeah. Alex front. I think one that, I use, I think personally, socially and with work and Jordan, and I use it sometimes is it's just good. You know, no matter when something bad happens, we kind of just like our reaction stays good. Even if it's the most sarcastic good in the history of the world, you know, some of these things kind of, you're almost speaking positivity into existence. And it's also a great, like, Hey, like, you know, what's really fun accomplishing hard things. They suck in the middle of it. And if you kind of have this, you know, Hey, there's a setback. Good. All right. It's going to be that much more rewarding when you finish it. Um, I think that's one that sometimes it's just out of reaction. We say it and it sounds sarcastic. Um, but I think over time has kind of created this super delusional positivity, which, you know, everyone could use a little bit of that in their life. That's good. Um, half of well, running a startup is, is psychological in, in my mind. Yeah. It, it's a mental game. So sometimes you have to be your own self-help coach. So I like that. Yeah. That, and then yeah. that's also when we get some negative feedback on this podcast, right? I'm going to say that's really good feedback. Thank you. That's good. Really good feedback. That's good. That's good. I thought I thought you were going to say everything's cat because I know we say that because oh, everything is cat. Yeah. yeah, that's that's uh that's for another podcast. That is for that is for another pod. Um, well, this was awesome. We're going to obviously have to do it again. Run out of time. Have so many more questions. But thanks for joining us, Bry. It's an absolute pleasure. We'll make sure we do it again sometime. It's awesome. Great chat, guys. All right, sir. See ya.